Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we could get some constructive uh, criticism or, or anybody really as a vendor or supplier could get constructive criticism on, you know, a fairly regular basis. I mean, your suppliers know when you're doing this. They know when to expect uh, this type of feedback and they know what you're expecting from the feedback and from them. They do. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, a lot of people that did the individual scorecards here didn't, uh, you know, it was kind of like Plinties when I first started doing it. You know, it's, uh, you know, hey, come on, I'm going to get some corrective action, help me do these. Um, there's a guy in our warehouse out here that's uh, very hardworking, very dedicated, very quiet, very sullen. And I was talking with our warehouse manager, our, uh, the, the DC director. He was talking about a supplier that would made some changes because of the scorecards. And this very quiet, very sullen warehouse guy that works for him walked up and, and dropped a few sentences out. And he, he said, hey, they're a lot better supplier. They fixed a lot of things. And it was uh, kind of mind-blowing. I, I don't think I'd ever heard him say one word, you know. Yeah. But he felt like he needed to get into the conversation and mention the fact that the supplier had gotten a lot better. That's awesome because I think internally also it it does a lot for the relationships internally because you're all working towards that that common goal with a supplier and uh, it may, it just makes things a lot easier. Everybody's excited to do the cards now, you know. And and I get comments like our our marketing manager she came to me and she goes she goes I don't know what you do to the suppliers but they're constantly asking me how they can make their scorecard better, you know. So they're asking other. Uh... Other people, other departments, other yeah. people, yeah, other departments. How they can get their score better? That's that's great. That's that's really nice to hear. So, um, I'm not sure if you've gone over this yet, but can you give us an example of a successful execution and what that ROI sort of meant? Or, you know, one of the first ones was a supplier that uh, we've definitely had some issues with over the years. Great people, but you know, delivery issues and things. And I, I had a rep from their company uh, tell me she goes. Uh, I can't fix any of this. She goes, can I give you another 5% of margin? You know, and I smiled and said, yes. And, you know, that's, that's as direct as you're going to get. And then, then there's a company that we buy a variety of items from. And coincidentally, it's one of my best friends in the industry runs the company. But uh, they jumped 16 places last year. Wow. They brought in barcoding. They've bagged things. They've... Uh, you know, they put people in to double-check things. They've, they've rearranged pick orders. I mean, uh, you know, and I'm sitting there looking at the scores right now. I'm missing a few scorecards, but preliminary, they're in the top four. Wow. And, you know, it's and they just, were in the mid-20s. Yeah, so, and it's just little things like that. Yeah, On right? that note, what can companies do to invest in their talent and keep skills up to date? Wow, that is a fantastic million-dollar question. So, um the first part of that is be a culture of development and coaching. You know, a lot of, a lot of organizations may say that that's what they aspire to, um, but from top down and bottom up, organizations must understand that they've got to have that culture of development and coaching, that, that it's a welcome in that organization. That's, that's number one. If, if you don't have that, you've got to start building it. And, and a 360 is a great way to start. Competency mapping is a great way to start. But there's some other things. So um, a couple things here. Leaders should always be with their teams. I mentioned it earlier, learning, coaching, developing, assisting in real time. So, you know, again, going back to those year reviews, that's in the history. That's in the past. We need to be looking at the right now and in the future. Um, 
what else can companies do? You mentioned it. Uh, competency mapping um, would, would be something that would be extremely important for organizations to start with. Um, and, and another thing that organizations can do is, is, I learned this a long time ago, it's called show, tell, do, review. Show your employees how it's supposed to be done. Tell them the process, steps, and expectations. Let them do the action in front of you and then review what you saw and continue to do that until they get it right, until they've met the expectations, until they feel comfortable with it. And that's a that's a great way to, to start building so your Where talent. do we go from here? How do you see the evolution of wearable tech with the introduction of AI, robotics, and VR? I mean, I know we talked about it a little bit, but let's get a little bit further into the future. So, you know, we're looking at... Um, Again, this the the future state coming quickly, more quickly than we can anticipate. Yeah. And um, what's there's a there's a really good quote from uh, from one of our our leaders um, here inside the company, and they he always says the future always comes more quickly than you think it will, and never in the way that you that you think it should look like. Great quote. So. So we, we definitely see that as the case. So we think it's going to come a lot more quickly, and it won't look the way we think it's going to look. One of the things that I really like as an example of that is, look, we saw the first generation in the, in the, in the eyeglass, in the, in, the, in the seeable space with Google Glass. And so that was a big hoopla about Google Glass, and then people started having privacy issues. And then people in Silicon Valley that were paying $2,000 for Google Glass, they were called glass holes, right? Oh. They were frowned upon as these sort of ridiculous Silicon Valley early adopters. So Poor that kind guys. Of away and Google got a little bit of a black eye, you could say. Um, but then we, I really like what's happening with Snapchat. So they have this, something called Spectacles. And so there, uh, if you, you know Snapchat, um, what happens on Snapchat is you get a visual image sent to you from your friend, and you, once you open up the image, it goes away in three seconds. Yeah. So their model is that they have glasses. They look like kind of 80s sunglasses. They're brightly colored, primary colors. They look great. And they have a little camera at the temple. And when a picture's being taken, a little digital LED circle goes around. So you know someone's taking a picture of you. It goes instantly to your Snapchat feed, so you don't have to touch your phone, and these goggles, they charge in a case. They're about 150 bucks, and so their distribution model is sort of as amorphous as the goggles. Let's go back to your first point for just a minute, because we're becoming typecast, and we've done it to ourselves, which is even worse. So think about, when I say this name, tell me who you think of. Um, or what character? Leonard Nimoy. No, that's Star Trek, isn't it? Yeah, Spock, right? Yeah. But here's the deal. Did you know that Spock or Leonard was actually a poet? I had no idea. Did you know that he actually recorded his own poetry? Didn't oh, he? I did, but I'm a bit of a nerd, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. You're the first person that I've ever talked to that knew that. But think about what that would be like, and I kind of joke about taking my wife out on a date, you know, and, you know, get the car running, pop in Leonard Nimoy poetry in there, you know, and open up the door for her. You know, it's, it's, it's that whole idea about, man, I just don't think about Leonard being a, a romantic or a poet, right? I just think about being cold, calculating scientist, yeah. right? Well, again, we're, we've done the same things to ourselves. We walk into a, a client, and we want to talk about strategy, and all they hear is cost. Yeah. You're just trying to sell me something. 
we've done it to ourselves, and it's going to take us a while to dig out of that, to dig away from that typecast that we've done to ourselves and get us to think more about being a better player and really to be a player. And as a broker, I was a broker for 18 years. I've been on sort of the commercial side now for two and a half. I think we should have been lawyers. They get paid a lot more. We just talked about uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people get paid a lot more. <laughs> um, but, I mean, ultimately, it allows me to think, like, what's going on in the other end of the phone type thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, we do corrections daily. Nothing's perfect. No, and that's and always it's never going to be. No. Um, but it's, there's a level of diligence that's required just just to maintain like, you're not doing more than you have to. You're really just doing what you're supposed to do and keeping yourselves in line with legislative requirements. And it's it's protectionist, right? Mm-hmm. So do you have an example of when a company went almost bankrupt for noncompliance? I mean, I know maybe we can't go into detail on company names because of confidentiality or... I don't know, but give me an example. Give me an example of when a company almost went bankrupt for noncompliance. So I've had clients, so the bankrupt thing, probably less likely financially, um, just because the impact isn't necessarily always one solid amount. No, but I mean like, okay, so you've, you've thought that your product was coming in at zero duty for the last four years. Then Customs comes in and says, no, it's actually 8%, and you've done, I don't know, thousands of entries over well, these exactly. last four years. Like, we're looking at, you know, a lot of money. Like, it could be half a million. It could be... And the problem with it is, I mean, the way finance works is you allocate funds. So our budget for this year is this much. Mm-hmm. Well, you get nailed with an audit. That's four years' worth of mistakes all being brought to light at the exact same moment. And you don't get monthly payments. Uh, or do you? I, you, I, well, you, I think you could probably you negotiate. Could, like, <laughs> They're um, not in the habit of bankrupting. Yeah. No, like no, they no, they no. don't want to, the CRA or whoever <coughs> to be involved doesn't want to put hardship on a company, let's say. Right. Um, so there is ways that they... I wouldn't necessarily, uh, people should shut their phone off when they're in interviews. <laughs> what is going on here? Not me. And, <laughs> no, that was me, guys. Um, so <clears throat> they, they will help you. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily like diminishing the whole thing or whatever. They mm-hmm. might reduce it or, or help you do payments or look at other ways that maybe there's a GST code or something like yeah. saying it's medical goods. Right. And, and no one thought about using that. So they, they will try and help you, but okay. there's no guarantee that everything's going to get wiped away and you're going to start clean. Right, 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 right. And for the most part, the way that the government gives concessions is allowing you to easily correct. They're not necessarily going to let you off the hook, but you won't have to do adjustments on every single individual entry. No. You but your broker's also going to hate you because yeah. then he's going to get this Excel sheet with like 100 some odd entries <laughs> and he has to do a B2 on every single one of them. <laughs> Can you just... The greater the variability that you introduce into your supply chain, the greater those buffers are going to be. So if you become demand driven, you reduce that variability. One way you reduce it is because you're no longer injecting variability with your inaccurate forecast. The second reason you reduce your variability is because you're positioning buffer position, uh, locations through the supply chain in the right places. Now, what that means is natural process variability, because things, you know, do go wrong in factories. Um, you know, lead times aren't always fixed. In fact, 
the, uh, the, the greater the capacity utilisation, the more likely it is that lead times are going to vary. But if you put inventory buffers in the supply chain, it dampens that variability. So, by, it's, and it's a bit strange this, but by put, putting, deliberately putting inventory buffers into the supply chain and dampening down the variability, as well as actually driving the supply chain with real demand and not an accurate forecast, you end up hitting your service levels with considerably less inventory than you would do otherwise. And as I said earlier on, companies that go down this route um, are able eventually to reduce their inventories by up to 50% because um, they can uh, they, they, they stop making too much of the wrong stuff, too little of the right stuff. They reduce their lead times. Um, they need far less variability buffer. Um, and, you know, eventually they have so much spare capacity as a consequence of this. And I've seen companies actually knock off third shifts as a consequence of this um, and even, you know, get down to well below two shifts. They can perhaps use some of that spare capacity to do quicker changeovers or, or more frequent changeovers. Um, and that, of course, means that they have lower batch sizes, which allows them to reduce inventory even more. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that, that's it, really. It sounds very simple, um, and it is very simple. It's just that it's a bit counterintuitive because people say, how can that possibly work with the demand variability that we have? And the answer is, well, if you've got a huge amount of demand variability, your forecasts are going to be so much, are so bad, that's why you've got so many problems. So the greater your demand variability, the greater the argument for becoming demand-driven. And if you've got lots of demand variability, you'll just buffer it, um, and you'll still be meeting your service levels with far less inventory than you, than you currently have. So that's the problem, I think. I think it's not, I, I don't think it at all. I know this is the problem with uh, supply chains. Too much variability causes a generation of very costly buffer. Um, what you want is flow, and uh, that's what you're doing with demand-driven. So, Simon, do you, with your experience, do you notice any trends that um, some, I, I guess, companies are more using the my or demand-driven supply chain to the other ones that are still forecasting? Like, is there any industry that's kind of taken the leap um, before any other company kind of started this? Um, I don't think you can really talk about industry types. Um, I mean, it, I think those companies with factories are, tend to be more interested in, in pure distribution companies because taking the variability out of their factories is an enormously beneficial thing to do. You know, factories are very expensive, and if you're not using them properly and you're not getting the right levels of capacity utilization, that's very costly. So manufacturing tends to be more interested this, in this at the moment than pure distribution companies. Now, you would have thought also that perhaps those companies with thinner, thinner margins would be more interested in this. Um, so companies that, you know, food companies, CPG companies, consumer packaged goods companies, and some of them are very interested in this. But, you know, even, when I say even, a, a number of companies with very big margins because they spend all their money on research and development like life science, um, some of them are very noted uh, um, 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 pioneers in this area. So it's not really to do with... It's not really to do with industry sector. It's more to do, 
it's, it's mainly manufacturing companies, and I think it's more the type of company. Um, so it really, the companies that really get into this early are those that are led by, um, I guess, leaders who are open-minded and interested and have a, and have a certain amount of uh, expertise, I guess, in uh, supply chain management.